0: Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? This is Jesse Kramer with The Best Interest. This is episode, boy, what is this? I would say this is episode 39. Of the best interest podcast, um, right now I'm what I'm doing episodes like once every six months. No boy, once every seven months. The last one was in January. I should probably address that first. So, some of you have reached out to me in the last couple months and said some pretty nice things about the podcast, and that's been encouraging and motivating. And the thought started going through my head that maybe I should get back behind the microphone, and start recording episodes again. So my hope, my plan. The ideal is that I record one episode a week, roughly one episode a week. It might not be too long. I'm not sure. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. It depends on how much good stuff we have to talk about. And we'll do just a general chit-chat about personal finance and investing, some some topics that happen to be in the news or that people are asking me about. Uh, I also want to answer your questions. And so there will be a couple calls to action today in the episode. Send me your questions. Email me jesse at at bestinterest.blog, find me on Twitter or Instagram, Uh, comment on my blog itself, which is bestinterest.blog, if you're not familiar with that, or if you know me, I mean, shoot me an email, uh, send me a Facebook message, whatever you want to do, because I want to answer your questions. It turns out that the questions that you guys have often create excellent content because other people are asking the same questions that you are. So you can help yourself and you can help others by asking those questions and I will do my best to help all you guys by answering them here on the podcast. And then the third thing that I'll probably be talking about and I know I'll talk about a little bit today is I'll use my recent articles that I've written as some sort of content motivation for for something to talk about here. So if you don't read my blog, no worries, that's totally fine. I wanna use this podcast as some sort of support or some sort of corollary to the blog so that even if you're not really, really a reader, you don't want to spend, you know, 10 minutes a week reading the articles, totally fine. If you'd rather listen, I will paraphrase the articles here for for lack of a better term. I probably won't read them word for word, but I want to talk about the ideas that I ta- that I write about on the blog. I want to talk about them here on the podcast. So with no further ado, let's jump in. So I have written 63 articles this year, which is kind of hard to believe, uh, being August 23rd. But especially earlier in the year, I was on this writing tear, (laughs) right? I was writing sometimes two or three or four articles in a week. And I've, I've calmed down a little bit more recently. But there's a lot of good stuff to talk about, a lot of cool articles to kind of bring those topics back up and discuss them here on the podcast. But the one I'm gonna start with is uh, the most recent article. I just wrote it yesterday. I wrote it August 22nd. It's called uh, The Perfectly Imperfect Investor. And again, you don't have to go read this article. You don't have to pull it up. I mean, that's why I'm talking about it here today. And uh, so we're gonna start talking about this thing called Monday morning quarterbacking that most of you have probably heard, You know, don't be a Monday morning quarterback. And that refers to, of course, the sport of football, quarterback, and the fact that most NFL games, most professional football games, are played on Sunday. College games are played on Saturday, so I suppose they're all played over the weekend. And most Monday mornings find uh, somewhere in corporate America two disgruntled guys, usually, let's face it, most football fans are guys, uh, huddled in some break room complaining about their team's decisions, right? They're second-guessing their quarterback, On a Monday, it's there being Monday morning quarterbacks because it's pretty hard to be a uh, elite quarterback. I suppose you're making split second decisions while defenders are trying to, you know, tackle you, injure you, harm you. It's a stressful, uh, stressful situation with not much time to to choose the right pass to throw. Uh, It's much less difficult to be, you know, staff accountant level three at some uh, mid level company and then just complain about the quarterback's passing choices uh, on a Monday. So Monday morning quarterback, it's pretty easy to complain after the fact. It's very easy and very human in fact to criticize any sort of choices after the fact. This is called hindsight bias. It's uh, incredibly common. It affects people and decisions far beyond the realm of football, and it's well studied. Uh, Psychologists and behavioral economists have studied hindsight bias. Officially since the 70s. I mean people have written about it for centuries and centuries just because humans noticed other humans doing it We notice that people frequently Change their opinions after the fact so that their new opinion more closely matches the way that reality actually unfolded and People also create explanations after the fact they incorporate the events that actually happened to rationalize decisions that they previously made so hindsight bias Basically what it means is, before a certain event, you thought one thing, and then you were probably wrong. But the fact that you were wrong, and the way that the event actually played out, kind of changes your opinion as time goes on. And you end up looking back at the event and thinking to yourself like, yeah, I knew it all along. They, They call hindsight bias the knew it all along bias. Where even if you were to say, keep a diary, you would realize that you were wrong beforehand. But your brain kind of fools you into thinking that you knew it all along after the fact. Yeah, it's a frequent problem. It's a troublesome problem, uh, especially in the investing world. And the more time I spend in the investing world, the more I see this hindsight bias affecting usually individual investors, people who aren't incredibly familiar with investing but know enough to be dangerous. And I recently spoke with an 80-year-old. We're going to call him Peyton to keep with the football theme. We're going to call him Peyton, and he had a few uh, interesting complaints about his portfolio. Now, his portfolio, there are going to be some numbers in this episode, but I'm going to try to keep the numbers fairly simple. Uh, his portfolio is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. This is a pretty famous uh, fraction, the 60-40 portfolio. And Peyton's first complaint is that because 40% of his portfolio is not exposed to the stock market, right? 40% is in bonds, because it's not exposed to the stock market, Peyton has missed out on some serious gains over the past decade. And to give you an example of that, uh, the stock portion of Peyton's investments, the stock portion of his portfolio, that's up about 13% per year over the last decade. So 60% of his portfolio is up 13%. If you do that math, you realize that uh, his annual portfolio return about 7.8% per year of his portfolio return is attributable to stocks. That's because 60% of 13% is 7.8. But Peyton's bond allocation, that's only up about 1.5% per year over the past decade. So 40% of his portfolio is exposed to a 1.5% gain, which means that his portfolio return from bonds is about 0.6% per year. So the sum of those two numbers leads to Peyton's total portfolio return, which is eight point four percent per year. Seven point eight from stocks, zero point six from bonds, seven point eight plus zero point six gets us eight point four percent per year. At eight point four, that's considerably less than the thirteen percent that a 100 percent stock allocation would have provided Peyton. And he's he's frustrated by that. He sees that he could have had thirteen percent per year but he only has 8.4 and that frustrates him. And Peyton's second complaint to me was that his portfolio is down about 10% this year. And he's an he's an older gentleman, you know, his portfolio isn't huge. He's drawing down his assets every year to to fund his lifestyle, right? He's living off of his his investments. So, drawing down your portfolio while it also drops 10% is kind of like a double whammy. So, it, it stinks for him that he's lost about 10% this year. Losing value is never fun. Uh, so the way Peyton kind of feels is that when the market was great, his portfolio was only good, and now that the market is down, Peyton's portfolio is down too. So he feels like he's getting the worst of both worlds. He underperformed when the market was great, and now that the market's down, well, he's down too. He's not down as much as the overall market this year, but you know, he's he's down, and being down stinks. So Peyton's questions to me were were simple. The first one was why wasn't I invested hundred percent in stocks up until the end of 2021? And the second question is why didn't I sell to all cash at the beginning of 2022 and miss this crash? Uh, so Peyton in my opinion is suffering from some hindsight bias. So to help explain Peyton's hindsight bias, Uh, I wanna think about something that I call the perfect investor. This idea, maybe they're a real person, we'll get to that later, but this idea called the perfect investor. So the perfect investor, they allocate uh, their portfolio to uh, 100% into stocks when the market is at a local bottom, right? They buy low. And then they allocate to 100% 100 bonds or maybe even 100% cash to be more conservative when the market is at a local top, meaning they they sell high, right? So every single time they buy low and they sell high. And this perfect investor has a perfectly rational brain that can handle all risk, meaning all stocks, or they can handle zero risk, all cash, depending on market conditions. And and they really have no in-between. They're either all gas, no break, or they Throw their cars, their car keys out the window, and then they don't drive at all. It's either all or nothing. And as I alluded to, they time the market perfectly every time. They always know when the market's at a bottom, and that's when they choose to buy. They always know when the market is at a top, and that's when they choose to sell. So that is the perfect investor. And I want to compare the perfect investor to someone who I call the imperfect investor. So first, the imperfect imperfect investor cannot time the market. They don't know how the market will move today, tomorrow, this month, this year. They they don't know what the future holds for the market. Uh, But they do have faith that over decades, the thousands of companies comprising the stock market will, on average, grow their revenues. And that's good for investors. You want companies to be growing their revenues if you're invested in those companies. Well, the imperfect investor They also know that cash or bonds will tend to underperform the stock market over time. Uh, There's some fairly straightforward reasons for that. Um, Stocks and bonds tend to be lower risk and lower risk means lower reward. That's simply the risk reward spectrum, that relationship. Um, But despite the underperformance from bonds and cash, the imperfect investor knows that bonds and cash still have a useful purpose. Now, namely, uh, one of those purposes is for short-term financial needs, where low-risk assets provide safe money. Uh, this is a key component to that whole concept of bucketing your money, uh, which maybe I'll get to in another podcast episode. And low-risk assets also help investors to rebalance their portfolio over time, provide some, uh, some ballast in the portfolio from which an investor can draw on when, when it's a good time to be buying stocks. Uh, and lastly, the imperfect investor, they know, well well, maybe they don't know it, but the imperfect investor has an irrational brain, an irrational brain. They feel anxious about the idea of an all-stock portfolio, uh, they fear missing out on rewarding opportunities if they hold all cash. Uh, when the market is rising, they, they sometimes feel this irrational uh, euphoria that other market participants feel. And when the market is falling, sometimes they do feel despondent or sad. So their psychology is not perfectly rational. So now I want to jump to amateur investors. When I speak to amateurs or non-investors, casual investors, they often believe that the perfect investor is not only real, but can be found at every advisory firm in America, every bank in America, every hedge fund in America they expect that their financial professionals the people that they're dealing with in their life resemble the perfect investor so they they think that someone is going to put them into stocks when the market is about to boom and then that perfect that financial professional is going to invest their money into cash or bonds when the market is about to crash so it's hard it's challenging and probably disappointing to explain to these novices to these amateur investors that nobody is actually that good. In fact, nobody is even close to being that good. That's one of the key points of today's episode, that nobody is even close to being as good as the perfect investor. The perfect investor doesn't exist, far from it. And, and why? Let's talk about why the perfect investor doesn't exist. So first, timing the market is famously challenging, even for financial professionals. Now, but surely you might think a professional can get their timing close, right? So, so maybe they aren't perfect to the day, but they should be able to see the market drop for a few weeks, pick up on that trend, and then sell before the market drops even more, right? Or maybe they see that the market rises for a month and then they buy stocks before the market rises even further, right? They pick up on the trend early and they react. But again, that's not really how the stock market works. That's not really how financial professionals tend to work. The market movement is actually pretty random. Um, It's getting, and this is getting a bit technical, uh, but the stock market is anything but smooth. And it often exhibits something called long tail behavior. Now a long tail, that's where a small number of, in this case trading days, account for a large portion of the overall market return. So I'll say that one more time. A small portion of trading days account for a large portion of the markets overall return. Now to give you an example we're gonna look at the S&P 500 from 1990 until 2019. During that time we're gonna exclude dividends for now. During that time the S&P 500 returned an annualized average of 7.7 percent per year. Now The best day in each of those years accounted for, on average, a 3.8% return. So again, on the year, the market returned 7.7%. The single best day accounted for 3.8%, okay? Now the best two days combined accounted for a 6.9% return. The best three days combined accounted for a 9.5% return. In other words, if an investor was so unlucky as to miss the three best days each year, it would turn their 7.7% gain into a 1.8% loss. So that in a nutshell is the problem with timing the market. It is very easy to get your timing wrong by a week or a month or a quarter. We've been over that, right? You can't get it right to the day, but what if you're wrong by a month? Well, the problem is, if that month happened to contain the best day, or two, or three, you can completely hamstring your portfolio's return. And that often isn't a risk worth running. So remember, markets are comprised of people, right? People like you and me. And in the marketplace, those people vote with their dollars, creating demand for particular assets, stocks, let's say, creating demand for particular stocks, and that demand affects those stocks prices. It's hard to vote correctly every time every day. That's really what you're asking someone to do if you want them to be the perfect investor. You're asking them to vote right on every stock that they buy or sell every day. And as a simple example that we just talked about shows, getting those votes wrong a few days a year can be punishing. The perfect investor doesn't exist. It's too hard for real humans to be that perfect. But then we have to ask an important question. If the perfect investor doesn't exist, then who are the best investors? Or at least who are the smartest investors? How do you be a smart investor? How can you be a smart investor? Now, ironically, the best investors tend to be versions of the imperfect investor. That, That person we were talking about before who is imperfect, their best skill by far is self awareness. So I'll say that again. The best skill, the best investors tend to be imperfect, and one of their best skills tends to be self awareness. Now, for example, the best investors often eliminate the desire to time the market because they know that they can't do it. They don't worry about buying or selling on a daily basis, instead, they tend to buy and hold for the long run. And only when they come to a point in life where they need to start selling in order to live off those assets, which for most people happens in retirement, that's when they stop buying and holding and they start selling. So again, they're self-aware that they can't time the market. So they choose not to time the market. Pretty easy. Uh, these The best investors, they tend to pick an asset allocation by understanding two criteria, their need for investment return and their risk appetite. They ignore the vicissitudes of the market, and that's a fancy way of saying, they ignore whether the market's going up or down. The the recent market performance doesn't change what their ideal asset allocation should be. Only their personal need for return and their personal risk appetite affect what their asset allocation should be. The, The best investors accept that their portfolio will never be perfect, right? When the market rises, They know that part of their portfolio likely won't be exposed to the good times. It's a bummer. It goes back to Peyton, right? Peyton holds a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. His portfolio isn't perfect, right? The perfect portfolio over the last 10 years would have been 100% stocks. But also when the market falls, the best investors know that part of their portfolio will be exposed to the carnage and, and that hurts. Um, It's better than the alternative, though, because the alternative, the perfect investor, doesn't really exist. And the harder you try to be the perfect investor, the more likely you are to hamstring your portfolio. So the imperfect investor, they are self-aware enough to know that their portfolio is imperfect. During the great times, they know that their portfolio might only be good, not great. And during the worst times, they know that their portfolio might be affected, too, and they're okay with that. They also, they don't make perfect the enemy of good. You might've heard that before. Don't make perfect the enemy of good. And I love this quote from famous investor, Bill Bernstein, who said, the purpose of investing is not simply to optimize returns and make yourself rich. The purpose is not to die poor. So again, the purpose of investing, you shouldn't have dreams of becoming a billionaire, right? That's not the purpose of investing. But if your dream is to, Live out your retirement in reasonable comfort, right? living a perfectly normal lifestyle. That can be a reasonable dream. So you don't have to try to maximize your returns to become a billionaire. All you have to do is minimize the probability that you die poor. And lastly, these ideal investors, they they don't fall victim to what I call results-oriented thinking. Results-oriented thinking is another name for Monday morning quarterbacking or the hindsight bias that we talked about earlier. They know that their portfolio was designed originally with a specific purpose. Now, whether the market has recently gone up or down, the original purpose remains their, their guidepost. It remains their compass. They don't let recent market affect whether they think their portfolio is good or bad because the portfolio was good and is good, based on their original purpose. So those best investors, they would look at today's circumstances, what we've been talking about, and they would say, well, based on Peyton's goals and his risk tolerance and his timeline, how do we maximize his probability of hitting his goals and minimize his probability of financial failure? Now, maybe the answer is a 60-40 portfolio, like the one Peyton is already invested in. and if the market does go up next week, Peyton might ask, why was I in 60-40? Why wasn't I in 100% stocks? And if the market goes down, he'll ask, why do I own any stocks? Why am I suffering this loss? Again, he's Monday morning quarterbacking. He's suffering hindsight bias. He's asking the wrong questions. Because the simple truth is that the 60-40 portfolio maximized the probability that Peyton would hit his goals, and it minimized his probability of financial failure. We made the best decision based on patent circumstances at the time that we made the decision. That's all we can ask for. The future changes in the market. It neither confirms nor denies that we were right. Now, there's this great, great quote from Annie Duke, famous poker player and now she's an author. And Annie said, two things determine how your life will turn out, luck and the quality of your decisions. Okay, guys, we can't control luck. All we can control is the quality of our decisions. And when we build, say, Peyton's portfolio, that's a decision that we control the quality of, and our role is to make the best decision possible. Whether the market goes up or down in the future, that's partly luck, and we can't control that. So the more you accept your investing imperfection, ironically, the closer to perfect you'll be. Now it's just too late And we can't go back I'm sorry. i sorry can't be perfect Okay, guys, thank you again for tuning in. Again, this is Jesse Kramer with The Best Interest. If you haven't yet, check out the blog, bestinterest.blog. And uh, as a reminder, send me your questions. I would love to answer your questions here. In fact, if you want to send an audio file... I can probably find a way to sneak the actual audio file into the podcast, but if not, just write in, send me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, or DM me on Twitter, find me on some other social media, that is all good, and uh, thank you again for listening to the Best Interest Podcast.